0: Clay has so many life lessons and um, uh, patience is a very big one uh, in terms of the work and I tell this to students the first thing off like it's only clay you have to understand it's only clay if something goes wrong you you know you, you recycle it and you start again the the, the responsiveness and um, There's just tons of stuff that you learn along the way. But learning to let go is um, in in this medium. I mean, if you can't chuck it and just move on, uh, forget it. Like (laughs) You shouldn't be doing this. You can't invest. You can't have so much invested in it that uh, you can't afford to lose it.
1: Welcome to episode 5 of A Jewish Life. I'm Rabbi Boris Dolan, Rabbi of Congregation Dorshe Met in Montreal, Quebec, and I'm excited to join in this journey with you. On this podcast, we will continue to learn about our Jewish community, exploring tradition, identity, spirituality, and activism through the lens of your stories, your lives, and experiences. There are so many pathways into Jewish tradition from ritual and religion, study, music, food, and art. Art holds an especially important place in Judaism, bringing beauty and meaning to the words and ideas of our tradition. From the most ancient biblical mosaics to contemporary Judaica, there has always been a belief that through the act of creativity and of Hidur Mitzvah, bringing holiness and beauty to ritual and practice, we can bring deep spirituality and connection to our lives. In fact, one could even say that Judaism sees our lives as art, and the work we do in the world as the most deep and authentic artistic expressions. There are many artists who see their art as the most honest expressions of their spirituality and faith. Archie Rand, a well-known painter who is known for his paintings on Jewish themes, including a series on the weekly Torah portion, sees art and religion as almost inseparable modes of expression. He once wrote in Hadassah magazine, Belief is an essential component of artistic creation. Sometimes people think that passion, emotion, enthusiasm, subconscious psychological activity can exist totally removed from spirituality. You can't function as an artist and not have faith, he said. Clearly, for so many people, faith, beauty, and art are deeply connected. On this episode of A Jewish Life, I interview Sheila Kaplan. Sheila is a well-known Montreal ceramic artist who's known for her beautiful and practical work, including many Judaic pieces which are in the homes of countless people who have connected with her work. While she clearly found her passion in pottery, the path to this joyful work began slowly. Sheila studied to be an occupational therapist and worked in this profession for many years, but found her love of pottery after taking a community art class. She was hooked and she never looked back. Sheila discusses the important life lessons she gained from pottery. Patience, forgiveness, moving on from mistakes and failure, and finding beauty in each moment. She also tells us about her unique Jewish path and identity and how she has used her art to educate others about Jewish traditions and spirituality. Sheila's story is an inspirational one, and I know for me, hearing her describe the joy of her art makes me want to put down what I'm doing and start playing with some clay. I hope that you enjoy hearing Sheila's story. Welcome, Sheila, to this episode of A Jewish Life. I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about what you know about your ancestors and maybe a bit about your early life.
0: Uh, Okay, both my parents came from Europe uh, when they were quite young, uh, in the early 1920s. My father came from Russia. Uh, He was one of, uh, he had two brothers and three half-brothers. The older, the half-brothers were older. And we were already in Canada when he came with his parents and his two siblings and grandfather and I think maybe an aunt, and they settled in Montreal.
1: Where did they come from? From Russia. From Russia, <clears throat> okay.
0: And my father was uh, eight or nine at the time.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And uh, my mother came from, uh, well, my grandmother was born in Hungary, and she was widowed while she was pregnant with my mother. Wow. And my that maternal grandmother had a couple of uh, siblings who were already here in Montreal. And in the early 20s, she came with her mother mm. and my mother, who was four at the time. And the story sort of boggles my mind. How you know a, a single woman with uh, with a, a preschooler and an aging mother gets on a boat and comes to Canada. And, yeah, that is yeah, impressive. It was quite impressive. And um, she had been. Uh, she must have worked in some sort of cottage industry of, of needle trade, uh, mm-hmm. seamstress. Uh, she was very good at sewing, mm-hmm. and she was able to uh, work in in the. Uh, In the garment industry here, Mm -hmm. she was a finisher, and uh, she was very good at her work and did a lot of sewing for for us as kids and stuff. Uh And um, she came from a more observant family and I guess had more impact on uh, my understanding or my exposure to to Judaism and uh, culture. Um, she spent a fair bit of time in our family. Uh, she Once once my mother was married, uh, I think for a short time, they lived in the same uh, home together mm. for a short time. Mm. And then <clears throat> my grandmother would live in uh, rented rooms in places. She really didn't have a, a home of her own. She would mm. rent a room in somebody's apartment or duplex or whatever. But she remarried quite late in life in her 60s. Um, mm. A, a Lubavitcher man, who was just lovely, really, really, just charming man, and he was very welcoming, and uh, we we really liked him. And uh, that, so that was her. Her late in her sixties, she remarried, and uh, oh, that's, yeah, that's great. It was new, yeah, interesting story. Uh-huh. So she she had a, a I guess more of an influence. Uh, you know, she was from Shabbos, and uh, you know the holidays she would spend with us. Uh, Uh, I remember times where she would, uh, we had like a a folding bed, the extra cot kind of thing, and she would come over and stay for holidays and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And uh, she had a sister-in-law. It was her her late husband's uh, sister who lived in New Jersey and had married a Catholic man. And this aunt would, well, it was my mother's aunt, uh, would come up uh, to Montreal for the week of Pesach. Mm -hmm. And would stay with us So that was very festive That we knew that Auntie Bella was coming And uh, she came with a suitcase full of presents And uh, spent the week with us And that sort of left uh, A very positive uh, image I have memories of, you know the three women beating egg whites in in the big bowls for for uh-huh. the sponge cakes and stuff like this. And uh-huh. you know, so it was it was it was nice.
1: So it sounds like you have many positive experiences of, yeah. of, of Jewish life and, yeah. and, and, yeah, and traditions. Guess,
0: yeah, and my parents uh, were sort of I guess uh, we we belong to. Uh, Orthodox uh, synagogues, but we weren't uh, completely Orthodox uh, in, which of course in tradition, which is very common. Is very common. Uh-huh. And uh, but I have I have uh, pleasant memories of, of being, especially with my grandmother at uh, holiday times and uh, at shul and stuff like that. And. Um, In terms of my education, I started off in the Protestant school board system, Mm -hmm. and when I was in grade three, I was put into like an after school, an afternoon school program at uh, Jewish People's School. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end of, towards the end of that year, I was bumped up to the grade two afternoon school, and then in the summer, between grade three and four, I had a tutor, and I was, Taught the the grade three program, and then in the fall I went into grade four of the day school. Mm. So that was uh, a big transition, mm-hmm. and uh, that was also a very positive experience. I I, I rather enjoyed it. It was uh, a very good uh, education, uh, mm. good grounding uh, for which I'm grateful now (laughs) that when I see other people who didn't have that and you know like you know the Hebrew the Yiddish it's it's just it's there from from like when I was you know 10 12 years old so it's Uh it's grounded and Uh uh, it's not foreign to me so uh, I'm very grateful to have that.
1: And at that time of course JPPS or Jewish People School, JPS was... not not as religious as it That's is today. Right. So it was Yiddish right. socialist. Uh, yeah, Hebrew. yeah. And
0: uh-huh. uh, it's interesting because my older brother, uh, they my parents did a similar transition thing when he was in grade four of elementary school. They you know had him tutored over the summer, and he moved into at the time there was a day school at uh, Young Israel Synagogue, uh-huh. which was more uh, orthodox uh, leanings, and. Um, that was the background that he had, and, and then he went on to Herzliya High School and uh, did a couple of years at yeshiva university and then went to another another way that that was the end of the sort of the Jewish education there I but for myself um, uh, I was never quite sure the answer I, you know what I was told was well i don't need to have all that you know uh, religious stuff, and my parents were sort of interested that I have the the Yiddish language which the other school didn't have, and uh, they thought this was. The right choice for me mm-hmm. so we ended up going to different schools
1: so in addition to your jewish upbringing and all those jewish memories can you tell me a little bit about your just general memories of childhood in montreal what do you remember about outside of your school life your, your friends uh, what you did for I w- fun i
0: went uh, i guess a highlight of my childhood was going to summer camp At uh, I went to Camp Wooden Acres, which was sort of a sister camp of Camp Brith. So this was an overnight camp. Overnight camp in the Laurentians and Saint Adolphe, and uh, that was uh, also just very positive. Uh, It was a it was a a Jewish camp. Uh, We had you know Friday nights on Shabbat and services of a sort. Very creative kind of uh, falling in line with a Reconstructionist <laughs> mm-hmm. take on services. But was
1: this uh, more of a JPS flavor? You know, a yeah. little more socialist yeah. and Yiddish, not, it, it, not as much. Well, there wasn't even or,
0: there wasn't even Yiddish. There were other camps that were more um, focused on uh, on Yiddish and, and sort of more socialist uh, leanings. Uh, this was a very generic uh, Jewish camp.
1: But it wasn't Orthodox. No, not at no. all.
0: Not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it was it was culturally uh, you know a Jewish camp it was kosher uh, we observed uh, you know we acknowledged Friday night and Shabbat and um, um, there were certain programs I guess that would have uh, Jewish content to them but Mm -hmm. it wasn't you know, a strong uh, leaning one way or the other. But okay, but good. most
1: importantly, you had fun outside. I during had the fun. <laughs> it, was, it was
0: great and um, made good friends. Uh, ran into people here like 40, 50 years later that I know you from camp. You know, like, <laughs> and they turn up here at Dorsham. I've know. actually
1: experienced some of those interactions. People yeah. Have, yeah. Uh, at services, uh, yeah. oh, I remember you back in the that's day campus. Yeah, campus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so that, that proves that they're quite strong memories. Yes, they
0: are. They to. were strong relationships and uh, I, I, I lived for, for summer camp. They were, uh-huh. they were great. So, uh-huh. um, and other... Uh, I, took, I took music lessons. I, took, I played the piano. I did ballet lessons. Uh, mm-hmm. The stuff that most kids did. Mm-hmm. at the time and um yeah it was good stuff
1: yeah so when you were younger uh, did you know what you wanted to do when you grew up
0: not really um i obviously had gravi- i was gravitating to uh, artsy things mm-hmm. uh, i always loved making things with my hands that was uh, half the fun of camp was arts and crafts i wasn't so crazy about the canoeing and the hiking but Give me the arts and crafts. That, oh. that was <laughs> that was what I kind of, um, that, that's what I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a time when I was quite young and I was, I guess, you know, drawing stuff or whatever. And uh, at one point, my father's business was uh, in um, school supplies and office supplies and things like that. Mm-hmm. And when I was, I think, in grade two, he came home one day and gave me this box of Prismacolor Hmm. Colored pencils, which were like the uh, you know the elite of uh, yeah, those, of colored those pencils.
1: Aren't, those aren't Crayola. Though. No, they're
0: not Crayola, <laughs> and they came in this lovely box that stood up like an easel, and you know it was uh-huh. really classy. And I, I think that was his sort of um, very quiet acknowledgement uh, for you know to foster my my interest. Uh-huh. In, so he was uh, picking up on that. Artistic uh, yeah, he he, he, he picked up on that, but in a very uh, discreet way. You know, it wasn't uh, sort of you know oh geez, you're really good at this. And you know, uh, just in his own quiet way, he kind of <laughs> fed it a little bit, nurtured uh-huh. it with uh, with that. And I think he always appreciated the arts. He never had an opportunity to really pursue it himself, mm-hmm. but he appreciated music and he appreciated art. And um, I think when he saw that I had this this interest, uh, he kind of nourished it that way. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: So was it a slow process to become an artist, to become a potter? Was this something you did later in life? How did it's, that work?
0: It's an interesting story because I, uh, as I was coming to the end of high school and had to decide what to do, uh, there were different... Um, uh, you know, visits to, you know, career counseling kind of things. And there was a visit to a uh, a rehab center. Mm-hmm. And we could visit the physiotherapy and occupational therapy uh, people there. And I was quite taken that in occupational therapy, they used all different media mm. in therapeutic ways. Uh-huh. But they were using different media, and that really sort of clicked with me because that was something that I liked to do. So I figured, oh, here's a a mm-hmm. good combination. Mm-hmm. So um, I uh, I got a bachelor's degree in occupational therapy, and mm. I worked for... Uh, I graduated in 72, and I worked uh, until 77 with a, a break for a year of traveling. Um, and... Th- I enjoyed being able to use the uh, the media that way and I, I I enjoyed the work. And then things, at a certain point another uh, OT friend of mine uh, suggested that we take uh, a pottery course at what was then the Sadie Bronfman Center uh-huh. uh, which was a school of fine arts where the Siegel Theater is now located. Uh-huh. And um, she said, well, it'll be fun at night, we'll relax after work, and, you know, will be cool. And so we signed up for this class and it was game over <laughs> for me <laughs> okay. like i was just uh, smitten you were in love. i was smitten with clay and uh, there were two other friends actually who signed up with me, and they, it was a three-hour class. And they would go up for for coffee break halfway through, and like after about the third class, they stopped asking me because there was no way I was leaving. There's only <laughs> you were too th- there's only three hours here. How can you go and take a coffee
1: break? You know. So before so, this time, you had never never touched clay, maybe at summer I camp. I had, had touched clay
0: that. actually as an OT student because it was one of the, we had to learn all the different uh, crafts. We learned leatherwork and basketry, and and you know the basics of. Pop- pottery and uh uh, uh, you know needlework we had to set up weaving looms i mean we did all kinds of uh, craft we had to we had to know how to do those things so that we could use it in in treatment so i had actually touched clay and i had touched a a potter's wheel it was an old style kick wheel treadle wheel Mm -hmm. but i had done that but it it never got beyond that but when i signed up for the class
1: that was a different story
0: that was something else (laughs) and uh I was very fortunate I had uh, a really uh, a really good teacher uh, and she saw how keen i was and um, i was I was making good progress and mm. at a certain point, things in the hospital world were getting less and less uh, appealing there was political stuff it was when the PQ came in and the oh, wow. the atmosphere got really unpleasant because a lot of staff were were leaving or talking of leaving and when you're working in psychiatry if if things are unstable like that in the environment it it sort of filters down to the patients and it was just it was not pleasant and uh and it was loving clay more and more and the balance started to shift and then one day I said that's it I'm leaving,
1: and you just you became a full time. And
0: I I left uh, I left OT, and uh, I had actually got, had a holiday planned for I think the month of August, and some incident happened at work in about June that just really was the the straw that broke the camel's back. Okay. and I came home and I said, "Why do I have to go back to work after my vacation? Like <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Do I do I really want this?" Uh-huh. And so I. Um, I, I handed in my resignation. I said, I'm not coming back. And that was it. So that was it. that was it? That was it. That's all. I was living by myself at the time. I didn't have, uh, you know, I had my little one-bedroom apartment. Oh, you
1: were alone at that. Uh, point. Yeah, I was okay. single,
0: and and uh, I didn't have a car, and I, you know, so my expenses were were very wow. minimal. So and your in those days, became
1: your best friend. <laughs> well,
0: I I started. I signed up for the classes in the daytime because ah, my teacher course. was was, you know, she saw I was keen, and she said, "Why don't you come in the daytime?" It was a more serious group, and uh, she offered a glaze technology class and made sure that it fit with my schedule, and I did. Some part-time work for my father uh, at his office, just bookkeeping kind of stuff, and actually also a little bit artistic because he, he used to send out um, flyers, so I would basically design them. It was sort of literal cut and paste with the rubber cement on the on the graph paper and course, cutting out pictures. I remember pi- those days. Cutting out <laughs> pictures and you know sticking on text and and all that stuff, and then those were fun. And uh, so I did that kind of stuff, and then I learned some basic bookkeeping skills while I was there. And um, I sort of, you know, did a little juggling act. I had some savings. And then my pottery teacher uh, said, so, you know, they're looking for somebody to teach at the uh, Golden Age Club across the street. Uh, maybe mm. you could just, so I, I did that. And, um, and then she said, you know, maybe you'd like to be the technician in the studio because uh, she was firing the kilns. She lived in Point Claire. And it was a bit of a schlep for her. Mm-hmm. So I said, sure. And uh, she taught me everything I needed to know about firing the kilns, and I had a key to the studio, and it was wonderful. And then from that, after, like, five years after I had started... A group of us were discussing uh, wanting to build something onto our home or create a studio at home. It was actually one of the Potter students who was uh, thrown a a surprise uh, bridal shower for me. It was just before we got married. And it was all the pottery people. And we were talking about this. And at that night, we just hatched the plan and said, why don't we do this together? And we'll set up a group studio. Mm -hmm. So it was May, and we rented a space in August, and we moved in in October, and we we set up shop, and we had a studio in NDG for uh, ten years.
1: For ten years, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it it definitely sounds like you had a more informal education when it comes to to, to yeah, pottery. No yeah. MFA.
0: But, no, but no. Definitely no. A,
1: a serious education. It was serious. It was something you yeah. jumped into right away and felt that passion right yeah, from the start.
0: Yeah, and I was really lucky to have uh, Phyllis, my teacher, because she really opened a lot of doors for me and, yes and uh so she was uh a mentor for me and, and a good friend and uh, oh, good. she 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 lived to 96 she died exa- just a year ago last wow. June. she was 96 and we we had seen her at her 95th birthday party she was living in Toronto at the time and uh, uh-huh. so that was a, a special
1: friendship so, where does Morris fall into this? Picture?
0: Well, Morris falls in. I'll backtrack a little bit because uh, morris Morris's parents were actually taking classes at the coming center where I was teaching that pottery class uh-huh. <laughs> and his father was doing the uh, the ceramics and sort of oh. put us together.
1: so that's how you met yeah, okay, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh-huh. And he's he's got his artistic... He, he's done painting for a long time. He actually... His father uh, was uh, an amateur uh, painter himself. We have a lot of his artwork hanging in our house. Mm-hmm. And uh, Morris had actually more formal art training than I did. He was taking classes at the Museum of Fine Arts when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father would take him there. Mm. And uh, now he's more into creative writing.
1: But so you, you met Morris uh, and you, I assume, decided to start a family... Tell me about uh, those years.
0: Uh, we married in eighty one, and uh, David was born in eighty five. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had a few years there before kids, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, we 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 did a little more traveling than our parents than we did, than we had done as, as children. So. Uh, we did, uh, actually, for our honeymoon, we went to Stratford for theater mm. and to uh, Rhinebeck, New York. There was a very good uh, craft show from the American Craft Council. It has four big shows uh, across the states. And the, wow. the, the spring one, the June one, was uh, in Rhinebeck, New York at the time. So Great. we combined our, uh, our arts interests mm-hmm. with that. And, um, and then Daniel was born in eighty nine. Uh, three and three years and a bit later and
1: uh, and did you manage to juggle your art and raising children was that challenging did that you, was I, challenging I assume you ended up doing spending a little less time in the I studio did there
0: was that. there was a, a quiet time uh, until David was born like from 81 till 85 I was quite active uh, at our studio and then it sort of slowed down uh, 85 to 89 I sort of got back into it part time and then um, I was, I, I, yeah, I got. I, I was part time there, and then in '92, uh, the studio actually folded uh, because mm-hmm. uh, there weren't enough people to keep it going. So mm-hmm. in this, in, in March of '92, we we closed up shop, and I inherited the kiln and some shelf units and stuff because I was the last of the original five people from from that uh, team. And um, I brought it all home and stuck it in the garage. I didn't have a place to to use it uh, in 92. And then we had a string of uh, you know a bad time where morris's father died in mm. july of that year and then my mother in september and my father in february and so everything stayed buried in the garage for quite a while it was about 2 years until i could pick it up again and then i wasn't ready to set up at home i um i joined a club uh in uh, on the west island in point claire mm. and started driving out there once or twice a week to get my hands dirty again and and then they closed for major renovations uh, and, and I was so annoyed it was like 6 months after I got into it and I, I said that's it I'm hauling out the wheel and I just set up a little corner of the play area in the uh, in the basement and started potting again and joined another club further afield in Bay Durfe <laughs> which was actually where my teacher Phyllis belonged and she kept egging me on, why don't you come to Maydurfe? And it's uh-huh. uh, a bigger schlep, but I made my pots at home and I brought them there to fire and to glaze and to fire. I see. <laughs> and uh, so I met a whole, you know, it was nice. I met, you know, a whole network of, of potters and stuff. The kiln was sitting in the garage but was not hooked up. We had to upgrade the amps and, you know, do the electrical work and this and that. And I wasn't sure if it was really a viable project or not. So I took a business course uh, Hmm. for women in home-based business to see, is this going to work or not? And Mm -hmm. uh, the upshot was yes. So that got me motivated, and we hooked up the kiln, and I set up more space and uh, Mm -hmm. started working from home.
1: But it wasn't... uh... It wasn't until your kids moved out that you really were? Well,
0: the kids are still, one is still at home, but yeah, but it was, they were, they were a little bit older. Yeah. They were, um, well, it was 90, it was around 99, 2000 when I set up at home. So David was already 15. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they were teenagers.
1: So going back to your original, that original spark that brought you into pottery, obviously. So your training was in physical therapy, occupational, uh, occupational therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know what was going on in your mind in a way because of that training, and just because that, this, that there was something deeply healing and spiritual about this process for you, or was it? it was it? What was that uh, initial experience of, of finding pottery for you, and, and going from occupational therapy into pottery? How did that affect you?
0: I I just well, I guess from the first time I just. Walked into the class and and just you know got into the got my hands dirty with it and it's just many people find it's very it's very relaxing it's uh, it takes you away from everything it's it's very therapeutic as a, you know as a, an activity in itself that I knew from you know from my training from OT but to actually experience it uh, those three hours just. Flew, and I was there for another three hours of mm-hmm. open workshop. I mean, <laughs> yes. any minute that I could grab there. Uh-huh. And, I, and I felt quite early on uh, with Clay, the, um, there's a tremendous satisfaction from taking a, a lump of mud and making something functional and beautiful uh-huh. from, from mud. That's all it, it, is. it is. That's incredible. all it is. Yeah. And the, the scope the 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 range of what can be done is infinite. Mm-hmm. What you can do with clay, and that whole thing, the, the idea of the infinity of it, was sort of it was mind-boggling. When you, I remember one day looking at the counter that was, had, I had all the finished stuff from an unloaded glaze kiln, and there was another student we would sort of come in to, to pick up our, our finished pieces. And it, it, it was one of those sort of eureka moments. I just looked at the shelf and I said, wow, like, it's all different, and mm. it's always going to be all different. You're never going to get the same, you know, they, they, like every person's work has a different flavor, and, and the material, the clay is different, and the, and the glaze materials are different, and the firing is different, and it, it, the exponential... You know, infinity of it was just astounding to me, mm-hmm. and um, to be when I looked at, at books on on pottery and to see how far back it goes, the history of it, mm-hmm. and to think that I'm part of that chain now, mm. and to sort of to to, to plug into that, uh, you know, to look at to go to museums and see pottery and you see, where you see the fingerprints, you see the hands that touched the work. You just have this instant connection because I touch the clay all the time. I know what this is. And to think, you know, another person thousands of years ago was doing the same thing.
1: Well, you know, it's amazing to hear you say this. And in so many ways, it sounds like your pottery, your passion for art is a reflection, a a symbol of your spiritual and your Jewish identity. I mean, just now you talked about history, knowing the people who came before you, the, the deep I would label it spirituality that you feel when you're when you're working on a pot, when you're at the wheel and the the idea even going into you know the 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 ethics and values of pottery that everything is not going to be the same and everything might be imperfect that every pot is different I know uh, for art for potters and artists who make mistakes you you can fret over it and, and get angry or you can just say well you made you a mistake, you go. have to move on. Yeah. And I actually remember you mentioning at the uh, Thousand and Ones Pots Festival up in the Laurentians when you gave us a tour of the Basilica yeah. uh, Garden. The, the, the yeah. garden where yeah. they have the potters who have put in their broken pieces. Yeah. And what a powerful idea that yeah. even from this brokenness, you can create something beautiful. Yeah. So clearly, would you label your, your work and your, your passion for art as spirituality? It's a good question. Um, I mean, that's, in some way, spirituality is a vague term, for, yeah, for better or yeah, worse. But yeah. how, what that experience? Obviously, it's much more than just it's not making just making money. No, and no. it's not just even doing something to give to someone else. There's no. something deeply powerful for you.
0: Yes, that, that's for sure. Uh, and there's sometimes. Um, Sometimes, uh, I haven't done it for a while, but I I made another series of of pots that are not on the wheel, that are not functional. They're coil pots, and they're smoke-fired, and they're totally decorative. And um, I did it because I wanted to learn that particular technique, sort of Mm -hmm. planning ahead for when I won't be so agile on the wheel and stuff and (laughs) Uh move on to other techniques. But when I do those pots, that was... That was a whole other experience. That was very spiritual because uh-huh. there was something uh, I would be working on sort of three pots uh, at a time. Start one, let it set up a little, move on, and then come back to the first one. And they just take on a life of their own. Like, you might have an idea of what you're doing, hmm. but... It was it was like magic. How I would have three pots that all started with the same principle. They all started with a coil, uh, an oval form, and you sort of build it and close it up, and you're working upside down. So you're making the bottom, and then when you turn them over, you have these three sort of egg shaped uh, vessels, and then you got to close them up and finish them, hmm. and. They all come out different. Like, how does this happen? Like, yes. uh, you know, the, the clay's a little softer. The clay's a little, you know, it bulges a little more here, or it wants to do that, or, you know, you, you just you just play with it. And if you come back to it on another day, it's going to be a different pot. It's not going to go in the same direction as where yes. you were on the other day, like on the previous day. You know, so they it was that was a very interesting experience because I would watch these three pots happen, <laughs> and like. Where did it come from? <laughs> you
1: know. Almost, miraculous. Almost miraculously.
0: Almost yeah. miraculously. Yeah, and and it's um, they're very meditative because you just it's very slow work and uh, you have to be very patient and wait till the clay is just the right consistency before you move on. So there's a lot of there's a lot of um, I always say to students it's a it's a dialogue with your clay because you uh, you have to listen to. What your clay is saying, where is it at? What is it going to tolerate? There's so much that you can control, but there's also a message that the clay is giving you and you have to respond to it just like the clay responds to your touch. So there's a lot of, it's like a conversation and there's this dialogue going on with the clay sometimes some days you, you're working the clay is a little softer and it sort of you know takes you in another direction because it's not behaving the way you think it would if it were stiffer and mm-hmm. you just have to go along with it and um it's 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 just uh, it's a really interesting uh, medium to work with i think m- much more um it's just very responsive i don't think that it, it's it's the 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 ultimate in uh, you know that kind of experience I, th- I would imagine wood also you know you have different qualities of wood uh, different characteristics that will sort of take mm-hmm. you down different paths but with clay it's changing all the time you change your clay body you work with a different clay and it just has a different feel and uh
1: mm-hmm.
0: takes you down another road
1: So when are you writing your self-help book? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, clearly, so many life lessons that you've just, in a few minutes, that you've you've talked about from patience, you know, patience, forgiveness, uh, understanding that every day will be different than the next. It's it's just filled with life lessons from beginning to end. It is. Do you think that Pottery has made you a better person.
0: I think so. It's interesting you say. You talk about those life lessons because I, I once um, I had uh, the opportunity to have a little article written about me. It was in the Canadian Jewish News um, some uh, long time ago uh, when I was just setting up at home, and um, I, I did talk about exactly that. That, li- that clay has so many life lessons uh, to mm. teach us, and. Um, uh, patience is a very big one uh, in terms of the work, and I tell this the students first thing off. Like, it's only clay. You have to understand it's only clay. If something goes wrong, you you know you, you recycle it and you start again. The the, the responsiveness and um, th- there's just tons of stuff that's that you learn along the way. But learning to let go is um, in, in this medium. I mean, if you can't. Chuck it, and just move on. Uh, mm. forget it. Like you shouldn't be doing this. You can't invest. You can't have so much invested in it that uh, you can't afford to lose it. And so oh, that's
1: that's a deep one right there, yeah, yeah, another life lesson
0: it's it's only clay. <laughs> it's and only quick, and you you just you just move on and wow. you have to let go of it. I once made a pot after the ice storm. That we had here in '98, of course, and um, oh, we had lost a lot of plants, big Diefenbachias that just keeled over. one six days without power, and it was a very, it was a very difficult time emotionally for everybody to to live through that kind of uh, trauma. And um, I decided I wanted to make, I had to replace a lot of the big plants that we had in the house because they sort of took up a lot of space, and now they were gone. And I wanted to make a pot to hold one of these big, pot, big plants. And so I, uh, not my, not my forte to make big kind of pot like that. I figured, well, I'll make it out of coils and it'll be easier than throwing it on the wheel. And I, I took pictures of broken trees and, and, uh, you know, I, I knew which clay I was going to use and how I was going to glaze it. It was a nice chocolatey dark clay and I was going to mm-hmm. use white glaze like ice. And, you know, and I, I coddled it and dried it slowly, and everything, and it's you know coming along. And, f- and I'm unwrapping it, and finally one day I look at it, concentric cracks all the way down mm. the pot. My technique was obviously not in hand building yet. Mm. And um, what are you going to do? I said, you know, Morris was devastated when he saw it. He said, "Can't you save it? Can't you do anything?" <laughs> and I said, "No, <laughs> you just you can't. Like it's it's beyond repair. What are you going to do with it?" I said. I'm going to smash up the clay and put it in a bucket of water and and use it over again and move on. <laughs> and move on. Uh-huh. And I never had a need to make that pot again. Uh-huh. I did not repeat it. It was it was just something that I had to do, you know, to get out of my system. Mm-hmm. And the pot was made, it served its purpose and that's it. Gone.
1: And you moved on. And you moved on. Okay. Yeah. So many of your many of your works are, uh, you know, practical pots, mugs, bowls, but you do a lot of Judaica. I
0: do. Yeah. So yeah. when
1: did you get interested in doing that, and what what do you feel is is the the power of making beautiful Judaica? Uh, you know, kiddish cups, yeah. uh, Passover seder plates, uh, all the other things you've made. Obviously, there is a tradition in Judaism of making sure that. You you make your rituals beautiful. beautiful. You you make these yeah. traditions beautiful. But for you personally, what what is the purpose of this, and what has it done for you, attenders? I started.
0: I started actually early on. It was when I was still at the Sadie Bronfman Center. I remember making uh, Kiddush cups uh, for my parents. I made wine cups. I made a Kiddush cup and, and a little set of, of wine cups, which are now back at my house. <laughs> okay. And. Um, I guess it was the combination of being able to, knowing that I could make something functional and practical. And attaching my heritage to it. I mean, if I could make a cup or a teapot or a plate, well, then why not make a, a seder plate or a coral Kiddush, a, cup. Or a Kiddush <laughs> cup? You know, what's the difference? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so it sort of it, it blended in. It made perfect sense to me. To that was just uh, another you know dimension of uh, of of what I could do with clay. And then um, when I got I got into it a little bit more. Um, it's uh, and actually I did I did uh, one time uh, the one Tvor Torah that I did was about uh, Hidor Mitzvah and and uh, oh, uh, you know making uh, these things beautiful that you use and then people started to ask me for them uh, so that was kind of fun and I uh, found this nice uh, Hebrew font uh, that I use uh, regularly I found it in this like three dollar Haggadah that we Picked up uh, one 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 (laughs) Pesach, but it just had this really nice font that appealed to me, and so I've uh, you know transferred that over to the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, there's a special satisfaction in giving uh, when when somebody I give them as gifts uh, quite often, and people buy them as gifts, especially you know items like seder plates um, or the apple and honey bowls. And uh, there's something very nice in knowing that these are going to. Jewish homes, and they're going to be used. Uh, The apple and honey bowl, in particular, uh, that's the item that I've probably sold more of than any other. Really, in the the Judaica stuff, yeah. Why
1: do you think that is?
0: I think it is because there aren't a whole lot of such items out there. That's true.
1: Plenty of um, Kiddush cups and Seder plates.
0: Exactly. No. Uh-huh. And like, I, it evolved from my own personal uh, need. I had, you know, a bowl of honey and a plate of apples and a mess on the table. And <laughs> I said, there has to be a better way. Uh-huh. And so I said, you know, this sort of chip and dip style bowl, like with a well for the honey and a place for the apples. And of course, you write something uh, relevant uh, on it. And uh, so we have Shetukhadei Shaleinu Mutuka. And, um, people started grabbing them because they were unique. And um, so I've sold more of those than anything else. And at a certain point, I realized, uh, as I sat down on Erev Rosh Hashanah and put ours out on the table, all over the world, my apple and honey bowls are coming out of cupboards, and they're out on the table now. (laughs) And it was... A really uh, a very it was a very powerful you know moment to think that all these bowls are coming out now, and everybody's doing the same thing with them, and it was it was quite special.
1: And as you said, this this idea of chidur mitzvah of of beautifying the mitzvah, more people are enjoying their apples and honey in a different way because of you. That's a very powerful idea. How many Judaica artists are there in the Montreal area? I mean, I know when I've seen your, your work up at the Thousand and One Pots, uh, there aren't that many others, and I'm always so proud to see your, your the, the Hebrew at your table. Uh, and are there people who are not Jewish who have... Discussed with you, you know, what is this? Yes, and have you, yes. Have they learned about Judaism through your art?
0: It's very interesting. I've had a lot of interesting conversations uh, at 1001 Pots with uh, non-Jewish visitors who will look at it. Some will, some, I, you know, I, if I'm standing near my table and somebody looks at it and they, they might recognize, they'll say, that's Hebrew, isn't it? Or they'll uh, look at it and they'll say... Mm, what is that? You know, like they're not quite sure what it is, uh-huh. and I tell them what it is, and and most often they will ask, "Well, what is it for? You know, what is this about?" And I'm very happy to explain it to them, and they're very happy to learn, and they always say, well, "Thank you." You know, uh, I learned something <laughs> today. You know, that, oh, that's interesting, uh-huh. and I've sold uh, um, a good number of pieces to people who are not Jewish who buy it for. Their daughter-in-law, who's Jewish, or their, you know, their their girl, their daughter's boyfriend's family, or whatever, <laughs> you know, they, they, or somebody at work, or a neighbor, or whatever, and they realize that this is something that these people would appreciate. Wow. So that that really that that feels very nice when when it's reaching beyond just, you know, it's not just another Jewish client, but but somebody else is thinking that this would be nice for somebody. Who's Jewish that they know? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, and there've been lots of interesting uh, conversations. I had one with um, some years ago with a, a French Canadian man who who recognized that it was Hebrew writing, uh, and he himself had studied uh, Greek and and I th- and maybe he knew some Hebrew also, but he was very intrigued with the writing. And uh, when his wife was off at another table, he came back and he said, I want to order one of those mugs that says uh, Ima on it. Would you make it for me? And, sure. You know, uh, that's great. Yeah. So it's uh, it's gone. It's reached beyond uh, what I originally thought. It's an sure. outreach tool. Isn't yes. There? Yes, it is.
1: And, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the, the power of your apple and honey dish. Yeah. It's also as something to show non-Jews. It's a yeah. very powerful explanation of Jewish tradition and spirituality. The idea that we don't just have a kiddush cup and yeah. a seder plate, yeah. but even dipping apples, apples in honey, honey. Yeah. is something that can be beautified by yeah. a piece of pottery. Yeah. It's, it's a comment on the Jewish idea of spirituality and the power of every moment in a way. And you, know, I think even art itself is a comment on making sure not to let life pass you by, you know, living in the moment, that sipping a cup of coffee from a cheap plastic mug is one thing, but sipping from a work of art is something yeah. else entirely. Yeah. So I think uh, clearly in your work and the way you've been explaining it, that that notion, I guess we call, call it spirituality or that notion of uh, that kavanah, that intention yeah. of making every moment beautiful, recognizing that everything is a blessing clearly comes through not only in your work, but in how you describe it uh, to others and how how you describe it to people who don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's been very interesting. A lot of people don't know when they look at the Seder plate. You know what is this? What, what is this all about? Uh, you know, and they and they, and they say, but, but what's written all around it? What is ah, all yeah. that? Yes. And then I have to explain to them. You know, seder means order, and this is the sequence of the events. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I give them the whole story and what goes on each little saucer. And it's so like you're a, could...
1: a museum curator. Yes,
0: yeah, that's what uh-huh. happens. Yeah, and uh-huh. uh, and they'll and then once they get into it, like I'll have you know my uh, I have the seder plate, the apple and honey bowl, the uh, the Yortzide candle holder. Yes, um, I make little cups for wine for bride and groom, uh, an diva. Uh, So people have bought, you know, so they ask, uh, or the kiddish cup, the the hand washing cup, why why two handles on this cup? You know, and I have to (laughs) explain it's it's like this for washing. And so, uh, yeah, people, uh, they they learn a lot of stuff and and, Mm. uh, they're always very uh, appreciative. It's nice, and and I feel good. It's my sort of uh, my, my little outreach, and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it's always been it's always been positive. That's great. Yeah. So I I remember uh, reading the Yom Kippur uh, Kol Nidre liturgy as a kid, and the section on Ki Hinei Kachomer Biyat Hayotzer, just that that metaphor uh, resonated, and uh, reading uh, there was. There's like the 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 mason and and the other other crafts other artisans that are, that are mentioned, but the one about clay, just uh, I, I had a an image a visual uh, picture uh, of somebody throwing pots, you know, just just a, a pot growing or, or shrinking or whatever on the uh, on the wheel, and it just it just stuck with me.
1: So tell me about your work with Empty Bowls. This is a, a program where we ha- that we have in town that I think you helped start that uh, raises money for charity and brings potters together to, uh, to, to help the community.
0: So Empty Bowls uh, started in the U.S. Uh, over 25 years ago. It's a, it's a fundraiser where potters donate uh, bowls, uh, soup, Bread are donated, public is invited, buys a ticket, chooses a bowl, takes it home, uh, has some soup in it at the event, and then takes the bowl home as a reminder of hunger in the world. And 100% of the proceeds go to fighting hunger, can be local, national, or international. So in Montreal, uh, it was a little slow in coming. And in about 2000, 2001, the Unitarian Church of Montreal... Decided to host one, and I was one of the first potters they contacted to solicit a donation from. So that's how I got involved initially, and I participated in their events. And I asked if I could set up a little table and sort of watch what happens while the event is going on. And I brought some pots in progress just to talk with people. And I noticed a number of Dorset Emmett people were kind of supporting the event too. Some were in the kitchen cooking, and some were coming to the event. And I sort of said this is something that we could use at our so, for a social action program at Dor Emmet. so I proposed it as a program here, and it was approved, and uh, it was going to be uh, a, 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 I spoke with a woman from the uh, Unitarian Church, how are we going to do this, you know, two events in in the city, and we talked at length about it, and it turned out that the year that we were finally ready to do it, their chairperson had stepped down, and they were taking a a, ba- a break. So we did it solo here at Dor for two years. And then the church wanted to come back on board. They got their committee organized. And we decided we would do it as a collaborative event. I would collect all the bowls since I'm the potter and I had a lot of pottery connections. It would be one donation from the potters, but we would split up the grand total into the two events and share it and pool the money and divide it into ben- uh, beneficiaries that each uh, institution would choose. Mm. And we did that for a number of years, and it was a wonderful collaboration. The Unitarian Church is quite compatible, I think, with uh, Reconstructionists, and we worked very well together, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so we had a, our, our joint event, So and we got a lot of nice publicity on that as being uh, um, you know, a collaborative event uh, between a, a church and a synagogue That's
1: great. Uh, uh-huh. so that
0: was that added another nice dimension to to the program
1: and how long has this been going on then?
0: well we started here uh, 12 years ago mm-hmm. uh, or thir- 12 or 13 years we did it for five years uh, under uh, my, myself chairing the program and then I stepped down as chair we had a one-year hiatus until somebody stepped up again and then we resumed uh, I guess no, a couple of years ago, I think in 2012, we picked it up again. Um, and we've been doing it ever since. So uh, it's it's been, we, su- we support our Hanukkah Food Basket Fund here at the shul through Empty Bowls. And it was one of the most popular uh, events for p- people to volunteer for. They really mm. loved participating in it. And in the mm. first years, it was uh, particularly exciting when it was New. Uh, I think uh, over the years, uh, attendance, I have to say, has waned a bit here at Dor Sheyemet, But in spite of that, uh, we've seen it grow in other ways. And there are other events popping up in other parts of the city that are supporting other uh, food security agencies, which is wonderful. So wherever it happens, it happens. Um, but it's been uh, it was it was a very exciting partnership to do here, and for me personally, it was very exciting to do it at Dor Emmet being pottery being my passion, and being able to give back to the community uh, through clay uh, through this event uh, was was very gratifying. It's it's a win win event for everybody. The people who come love it. And the people who participate in it love it. Mm-hmm. And the beneficiaries are very grateful for what they receive from it. So, what could be better?
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful program. Yeah. So, moving from your art and to your connection with the Jewish community. So, I know you've been a member of, of this community for many years. D- did you feel a need to be part of an organized Jewish community as, as you're growing up? When did you first become active in synagogue life? Why did you become active in, in synagogue life? And how is this? Uh, affected you yeah. over the years?
0: Well, um, we joined here when Daniel was born. So that's 29 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we joined because uh, I, had been, I had been brought up more with an Orthodox uh, tradition. And when we were first married, I would go to shul for the high holidays. And Morris was unaffiliated. Uh-huh. And it sort of worked for a little while. And then when David was born, it wasn't working so well. And then Morris felt that this isn't the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, less less connected um, okay. at the time, uh, but realized that we really needed to do something as a family, that, that, that we, he didn't want to sort of repeat the scenario that, that he had gone through as a child where there was friction over that. And um, it was actually his suggestion that we try uh dorchemet and see we had actually been uh invited to a couple of bat mitzvahs so we had we had sort of uh, had a flavor of what it was and and we said okay well you know let's let's see what it's like and we we came and i think we may have started with um uh, high holiday services I remember we did, there used to be a uh, a parallel service outside of the building. Uh, the we, we show would rent space either at uh, JPS or at mm-hmm. uh, the the time that we did it was at the old Fraser Hickson Library, which is no more either. That's on uh, Summer Lead in Kensington. Yeah,
1: that's, that's, I've heard stories. Of
0: yeah, that. so um, I think it was when I was pregnant with Daniel. Uh, oh. We we went to the uh, high holiday services at the Fraser Hickson and after he was born uh we said okay we'll we'll join uh-huh. and um so that was in uh in 89 and i i was very pleasantly surprised at how much i liked it i mean i th- i thought it would be okay um but i knew it was very different from what i was used to uh but i felt very comfortable very quickly and a lot of the um Uh, The text uh, and the liturgy resonated uh, more strongly with me. Uh, I remember actually paying more attention to the—I remember reading the English in the Machser when we were at the Fraser Hickson, Mm. and the section of, uh, I guess, not al Khait but the other one— close near the Al Khait section mm-hmm. where it talks about uh, for the sins we've committed uh, you know, by uh, spoiling the environment and, and and contaminating the water and this and that.
1: The alternative the alternative. alternative, the yes, alternative which still use. Yeah, yeah. Yes.
0: And something clicked uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that was different from the traditional Al Khait. A new relevance. A, a, a new relevance, what I said. Like that really that clicks, you know. Wow. And um so gradually the other stuff started to uh, to make more sense to me too and uh certainly being uh, egalitarian um uh, was appealing. Uh, and when I saw how women participated it um made me think there's possibility here. Mm-hmm. Uh Patty Edelstein was the first female that I heard uh, laning Torah, which really was astonishing. Uh, That was, you know, really just so foreign to the ear to hear a a woman's voice uh, laning Torah, and um, that was that was significant. And so when when the kids were young, I remember coming on uh, on occasionally on Shabbat, and just really enjoying that two hours time out, like, away from the kids and mm-hmm. just <laughs> focus on, read the Torah reading. Like, I, you know, I hadn't done this, like, for decades. I, I knew what was there from what I had learned at school, but to read it as an adult now and to listen to the Dvar Torah and hear the discussion, and, like, you know, the the, the intellectual uh, stimulation was, uh, was really very appealing. Mm-hmm. And... um and you've kept coming, back. and we kept coming back. And then, when I was at the uh, in, in the period of having uh, to to say Kaddish after my mother, and then my father died, it was a long a yeah. long stretch. And um, and I heard these these young girls having bat mitzvahs and sort of thinking, if they could do it, then maybe mm. I could do it too. You know, I never had that opportunity when I was their age. And um, so I was. I was actually interested in learning the Haftarah trope. And uh, at the time, uh, Barry Frank was uh, going to be giving a, a class on Torah trope. So I figured, well, I'll, I'll try my hand at that. And um, he was very, very encouraging. And in spite of the fact that I thought I never thought that I had a voice that that could sing, um, he, he really. Uh, made made it happen and uh, I was I, f- I found, again, I like the uh, the challenge. It's sort of the decoding of the trope, and it's sort of puzzle work and it's memory mm-hmm. work and uh, aside from what you're learning from the text and mm-hmm. it's sort of uh, it, that had an appeal to me also just to sort of have mm-hmm. a little finger in the pie and, and, and you know just sort of keep working at it bit by bit like that so uh, it was very encouraging and uh, got me going. So
1: And Did you have an adult bat mitzvah? Or, or no?
0: Well, when I turned 50 I kind of, it wasn't a real, but bo- I read, I read I Torah then and, uh, and I, yeah, and that was sort of, but it was enough sort of in my head to know that, that I could yeah. do this, that I could acquire this skill and that um, I, I had always seen, been, I, I guess I, I, the reflection back on me was that I was a shy person as a kid. And uh, and I was, uh, you know, but I, I, I sort of had internalized a lot of that and never felt really comfortable about being in front of a crowd and, and saying things. And so uh, I think it's a testament to this particular community that I felt comfortable enough to get up on the bima and lay in Torah uh, mm-hmm. in front of others. And um, so it's, uh, that, that was a whole other... New experience for me, Uh and uh, I enjoy doing it uh, to this day. And you still do, yeah. And And I
1: think the the same lessons apply to Torah reading as pottery. If you make a mistake, you just have to move on.
0: That's it. That's (laughs) it. And the fact that my cousin Neil likes to do it also is is, adds another uh, dimension to it. We have we do it as a team quite often, and Uh uh, it's it's just another thing that brings us closer together that we have this common uh, interest, and uh, we enjoy. doing doing it and um so it's been fun that's beautiful yeah
1: so on to some of the tough questions uh so theology and god and and you've talked obviously a little bit about spirituality connected with jewish life and with uh with your 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 art where do you see god godliness and all this Is, is that part of the reason why you're part of jewish life in this community, we have a very diverse community of secular Jews, religious Jews, people who grew up Orthodox, people who have converted, people who just come for the food and the culture. Uh, so, religiously, not just the, the 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 enjoyment you get from Torah reading. Uh, what does this this community? What does Judaism hold for you religiously? What do you believe about God, godliness, holiness?
0: I think I'm I'm I consider myself more like. Culturally Jewish, mm-hmm. um, I feel sp- I, spiritual experiences as in with the, with the clay, or if I'm in nature or things like that. God per se, <laughs> that's uh, I'm I, I, I can't pinpoint, um, but I I guess I'm more uh, spiritually uh, yes. okay. connected. Uh, I, I I find it hard to to uh, you know grasp that there's one being or one something out uh, there a supernatural, a supernatural, concept, supernatural right concept doesn't yeah. work uh, so I, I guess uh, you know it falls in line with the reconstructionist uh, thoughts uh, it's more in our actions and what we do and um, and just in appreciating mm-hmm. the beauty and and, and the Amazingness of, of, of what's around us. Mm-hmm.
1: But it's amazing. I mean, you're, you're a regular at services, you read Torah, you clearly, from an outsider's perspective, you live a religious life. But I, I think from an insider's perspective, from people who know you and know this community, that flexibility to be okay enjoying services and the religious rituals, even if you don't consider yourself yeah, a religious person yeah. or believe in a supernatural concept of God, you clearly you've given yourself that freedom, and, and you feel a pride in your Judaism, a, fr- a pride in your beliefs, and you have a deep connection with Jewish tradition and ritual.
0: I do, I, and I think I think it's the um, the tradition and the ritual they resonate for me. There's something very, uh, I guess, comforting about knowing the 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 history, the lineage of these things, and being. Uh, a part of them today, the sort of that continuity.
1: The fingerprints the on the fingerprints, <laughs> Exactly,
0: exactly. And, yes. you know, um, so I, I, I do. I enjoy the ritual um, and I enjoy this community. Uh, mm-hmm. So a lot of, uh, you know, the 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 pleasure of coming is for the pleasure of, of being with the people who are here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's made a a, a big difference. Uh, we you know we socialize with with people from from Shul. We we see them. We bump into them all over the place, and um, it's it's our community. So we feel quite at home here. And uh, so it's a it's a combination, yes. But I definitely uh, I, I like the, the the rituals do resonate. Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: I, I feel like uh, moving into another uh, metaphor here of centering the pot. This yeah. place, this it place is. centers you. Yes. And yeah. Moving a little further into this, <laughs> the symbolism here, you know, sometimes I know when you center a pot it takes more time you have to it it doesn't just happen automatically but once you've done it yeah it's it's just a great feeling you feel that sense of of connection you feel that sense of everything's working out fine and in a good strong community yeah you feel centered you feel everything is spinning around just as it should and when those mistakes appear as you've said again and again you move forward but you have that centeredness to hold it together The connections with potter are just endless. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever thought about them in that way before. As you know, every Jewish community is dealing with challenges. There's uh, assimilation. There's the challenges of of attracting new members. uh, There's financial issues, a building, holding on to the the need for a building, but not focusing on just the fact that we have a roof over our heads. There are so many attempts in this community and other communities to try to uh, bring in young families, to bring in old families, people just to connect with our community, both so that we can remain as a strong community, but also that we can physically and otherwise survive into the future. So with your experiences and with your, your spirituality that you gained from your art, what do you think we need to be doing in this community, but also just as a Jewish community in general, to make sure that Judaism remains relevant, useful, that we can survive into the future? It's a big question. Big question. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, I, I certainly see
0: the, the balancing act that that has to be done. Um, we definitely do want to reach young people, new new families. I can see that, uh, and I guess being of the uh, the other half of the balance uh, on the more uh, senior side of it. Uh, elders. The elders, yeah. Yes. Um, there's certain parts of me that that want to, you know, retain yes, uh, of things. Course. So uh, it's...
1: You feel the push and pull. I
0: feel a push and pull. I push and pull. I, there's lots of children coming into the, the children's program now. Um, but at the same time, I also want to feel that there's something for, for, for me, Yes, of course. Uh, still, still here. I, I, I feel the the evolution. I feel the trend that, that, that there is a,
1: a transition at this point. And I, and I think, and that transition, I, I know, being the rabbi, that that yeah. transition sometimes it's not easy. Yeah. yeah and sometimes, yeah. Uh, the needs of each side. Yes. Uh You know, you feel like, why are they getting all the focus? Yeah, and yeah. And how can we, as has been talked about, how can we continue to b- build one community and hold on hold to on. that? that centeredness that yeah. we've had for so long yeah
0: yeah, no yeah. it's um, I don't have an answer it's okay. well. uh, it's it's definitely a challenge um, but there is uh, I know when we come and we we're here with with the people that we know from a long time we yeah. we really we really enjoy that we really appreciate the community that's that's here it's very special um, there's there's people that uh, that you can you can count on, and uh, they're there for you. And we always, you know, invariably are happy that we've come to Shul on Shabbat because we've had a nice conversation with this one or that one, and uh, there's always something, and we've, you know, we've learned something, and uh, it's it's uplifting in Mm -hmm. one way or another. So there's... um, I don't envy you. <laughs> it's not easy being uh, caught in, in that kind of transition. It's very yeah. challenging.
1: Well, but I think it's, uh, there's a lot of hope there, and I think that's, that's, that's what we have to hold on to. Yeah. yeah, I think, as you've talked about, I mean, the, the beauty that's inherent in Jew- Judaism and in Jewish community and Jewish tradition, the goal is to, like making your pottery, to make that something that's beautiful, that's not yeah. just... On the one hand, when I think about it, we we don't want to make Judaism just an Ikea pot, you know, (laughs) an Ikea mug that that anyone can get. We have to make it unique. We have to make it exciting, like a a work of art. But also, it has to be practical. It it can't just be something that we put on our shelves and that we we look at. Uh, And I I think that's really where the challenge is, because for for many for many jews they see judaism as just that that thing that's on the wall Mm -hmm. or that they see that as the the mug that just that just we look at but so many people want different things we have to find a way to bring everyone together and that i think definitely is a challenge yeah so any any final wisdom you'd like to share any reflections on life on (laughs) judaism on arts (laughs) profound anything profound to end with
0: I don't know, nothing profound, uh, just um, thank you for the opportunity of sharing my, my experience and my, my take. <laughs> and um, I don't know, I just, I look forward to, to more, more years, many years of uh, good, strong community.
1: Amen. Thank you. And thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of A Jewish Life as we heard the story of Sheila Kaplan and her journey into art, identity, and Jewish tradition. We shouldn't underestimate the importance of art to our experience in a spiritual community. And we need to remind ourselves that even if we have never picked up a paintbrush or been on a potter's wheel, we are all artists. The works that we create, the relationships, and the experiences of our lives that we paint on a daily basis are the ways that we make sense of what we see, hear, and know in the world. As Jews, We are asked to be artists of interpretation, giving the opportunity to take each moment to ask questions, challenge each other, and create life anew. This is what the rabbis did when they wrote commentaries on the Torah. And this is what we do when we take on the challenge and joy of making meaning from our traditions and heritage. Ultimately, Judaism asks us not to just sit back and watch others create, but to be artists ourselves, to be part of the act of creation, of interpretation, and of the search for meaning in our lives. We have to make Judaism our own and can only do this when we understand the need to use the palette of our individual lives, experiences, and values to add color and layers to the traditions that are handed down to us. We are continuing the work of creation through all the work we do in the world, but first we have to be present enough to see where the world needs our help. As the poet Marge Piercy writes, Bless whatever you can with eyes, hands, and tongue. If you can't bless it get ready to make it new. There's a time to be observers, and there's a time to take out our paintbrushes and create. There are so many stories out there, so many different ways of connecting with Jewish life and tradition. These stories come not just from scholars or the leaders. These stories come from everywhere. These stories come from you. If you're interested in sharing your story on our podcast, or if you have comments on the show, you can always contact me at boris at life.org or find me on our website ajewishlife.org, or on Facebook at A Jewish Life. Your story, your journey, is part of our story, and I look forward to getting to know you on A Jewish Life.